of fighting back. It's about resisting the devil. It's about realizing that the devil wants to assault your mind and your heart to convince you to believe things that are not true. And so to steal from you your peace, your confidence, even your joy. And we're going to dive straight into this today because I want to make sure we fit this into a good amount of time. But therefore, I also want you to understand off the bat, this is not an option, right? Peter's going to say this. Believing what he says is not something you choose. Giving your heart and your mind to understanding the scriptures, to reading them, to speaking them, to letting them be stronger than the white noise around you is not an option for you as a Christian. Christianity isn't about being saved. It's about being disciplined by God into salvation. And there's a big difference in how we hear those words in Americans. It's not about how I show up sometimes and God loves me and it's great and I do whatever I want. It's about how God sees how dangerous it is. And so he's coming along. He's going to smack you in the head, actually. Say, wake up, look around you, understand what's going on. And now follow me to the way out. Which again is to ultimately resist the devil's lies by putting into your heart instead the truth of Jesus' promises. This is about peace. This is about a clean conscience, right? It's about knowing who you really are in God's sight. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 to start. He opens up with a tremendous promise. I almost don't think I need to explain what it says. It's so clear. So again, if you're going to take notes, which I really encourage you to start trying to do, the first thing to do here is write down chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, very clear. Read it later this week. Read it again this week. It will make me feel better this week. I write that down if you're taking notes and then come back to this later. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. We're diving right in. It says, blessed be God. Excuse me, there's an article there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, again, I think that's super clear on its own, but we'll open it just a bit here to get us going. Blessed be the God and Father of Jesus. That's just Alleluia. It's just a way of saying Alleluia. Praise Jesus. Praise God. Thanks be to God for what he's done for us. And he wants you to, to say that, to feel that, to think that. That in fact, the best thing you can do in any moment in your life is to remember that God's on your side and say Alleluia out loud. Let's see you say it. Say it. Alleluia. There you go. Uh, why? Why would we praise him? Why would we bless him? Because According to his great mercy, notice the grace. Notice about his action on your behalf. According to his great mercy, he has, past tense, caused us, that's you and me, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Born again. That's language that Lutherans don't use a lot. 
That's because when you hear that language from your evangelical and your Baptist friends, it means something completely different than what the Bible means. They always think it means uh, you're going to now live this upward life in which everything's good and we feel better. And I've always got this fire from Jesus in my belly. That can happen. You can have a fire from Jesus in your belly. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's no such thing. They make that what it's all about. It's not all about that. It's about knowing that you were born out of your mother with the sin of Adam. That's why you're going to die. But you have been born again in Christ. That's why you're going to rise from the dead. That's the living hope you have now. Not your best life now, but the hope of life to come. I said I was going to be saying this a lot this year, and now I really am finding that I am. We must remember that Christianity is an end-of-the-world cult, huh? especially as we get smaller and smaller. I don't mean that we're a cult in the sense that we socially manipulate you. That's the way the JWs do it. I mean, we're a small group that disagree with everybody else and think they're really, really wrong. And the way we do right now is we believe the world's going to end. It's not going to go on forever as it has from the beginning. It's going to get burned with a bunch of fire, just like it got destroyed by the water a long time ago. But you have a living hope knowing just like the water brought the ark safely through, the fire has already been taken into the baptism of Jesus on the cross. And so you're going to go through that judgment day purified and clean. That's your living hope. In notice, it's in the resurrection. It's not in your best life now. It's not in your emotional life now. It's in the fact you know whatever's now is going to pass and be replaced with the resurrection from the dead that Jesus has already achieved. That's the inheritance that's undefiled and unblemished and kept in heaven for you as he sits at the right hand of the Father where he shall never die again. And the wounds, the scars that are there, that's you with him, seated in his hands, seated in his brow, made one with him in heaven so that by faith now here on earth you are tied to him forever looking for that salvation that will come in the last time end of verse 5 let's skip ahead to verse 22 now all right where it says this having purified your souls by obedience to the truth i'm gonna stop there it's gonna say what to do next but i want you to not miss what it just said having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. What truth? What kind of obedience? The one he was just talking about. Faith that Jesus' resurrection has overcome this age, this age which will remain a place of chaos, shadow, and destruction, so that even when the empires get as great as they can get, it's only so that they can fall again. Knowing that that is true and not then being led astray, having your hope in this life, but keeping your hope in the life to come, having that be what your conscience and your soul is freed with, then for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been, verse 23, born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For, and he quotes Isaiah here, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, 
But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you. I know the, the Pew Bible says good news. It's, it's gospel. Euangelion in the Greek. The gospel that was preached to you. So let's look at that again a little bit more slowly. You've purified your soul by believing Jesus is your savior. Yeah. So since you know that, what's your life to be about now? You've received mercy. Show mercy. That's what love is. Love is when you give to someone what they don't deserve out of your commitment to seeing their good, even if it means your bad. That's mercy. It's what God has done for you, and it's what we are to do for each other, sincerely, yes? Knowing again, we've been born again. Knowing again that death cannot contain us. Knowing again that anything you lose in this life will be restored more than a hundredfold in the life to come. You can't even compare the two. I was talking yesterday with somebody about uh, how hard it is to imagine the life of the world to come. And this person's into sports. And I'm into sports too. I like games. I like competition. I like to win. Hmm? Uh, And we were kind of talking about how How's that going to work when you have a perfect basketball game and both sides play perfectly and everybody's glad at the end of it? How do you have a winner and a loser? Now, here's the real trick in this. So we look ahead and we imagine this world that's perfect and good in which nobody loses. And we think, I'm not sure I want that. You follow me on this? Like we think in order for it to be good, there has to be some sort of bad. That's how backwards we are. That's how little we can imagine the future being as good as it is. We can't think of a world in which you take risks and the only results are different goods. We can only think of risks that end up with a good or a bad. But the world that is coming is going to be filled with adventure. Adventure and exploration and life and experience. Everything we think we have now, which is plagued by the risk of loss, will there only become more and more good. Yes? All right, so again, born again to that imperishable hope of knowing what's coming, to the knowledge that whatever we lose here will be restored a hundredfold and more then. You have been born again, then it says in verse 23, through the living and abiding word of God. That is why as a congregation, we are putting so much emphasis on Bible reading this year because our spirit will live because the word of God is in us. And wherein we are unwilling to have the word of God be in us, we must expect our spirit to die. Now I can tell you, I'm very proud of you, St. Paul. You've met this challenge. There are more and more of you buying into this idea that you've got to open it at home. You got to take some notes. You got to say it out loud. And it shows. It shows the seeds are getting planted and these seeds aren't going to blossom into giant trees right now, but they will. They will. We are on a strong path toward being a people who trust Jesus more than ourselves. And through the midst of what for most people is the worst two years in their imagination of American history, we've grown in strength with each other. What else can possibly happen? But more and more firm foundation being laid because it is the word of God that makes you alive. And that's what you're here for, right? That's why we're doing this right now, verse by verse, because we understand what verse 24 says, that all flesh, that's us, we're like grass, all mankind, all our efforts, we're like flowers in the field. 
it withers, it dies, it gets cut down, it gets burned. But the word that God speaks, it lasts forever. Remember how our Lord said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And then Peter is firm to say, and that word's the good news, that Jesus saved you, that he is risen. Alleluia, that Christ has died. Christ will come, and Christ will come. I messed you up, didn't I? Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. You got it right. I messed it up. All right. Let's jump ahead now to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where it talks about, as you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone, that's a metaphor, okay? So he's like a a foundation stone, a block of of good stone that's laying at the bottom of a pillar or a, a building, really. But he's alive, right? He's the new temple of God. As you come to him, rejected by men, that's him dying on the cross, That's the fact that salvation is a narrow way and few find it, while the wide way to destruction has many people on it, right? He's rejected by men, but in the sight of the true God, chosen and precious, that's my beloved son on the cross. That's why he rises from the dead. As you come to him, verse five, you yourselves, plural, that's us as the church, like living stones, the same idea, like him, are being built into a spiritual house. So together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And our faith in Christ, our knowledge that he is God, that's the spirit at work in you. That's him inhabiting you. That's what makes us the temple, right? And then it also makes us, we'll talk more about this in a moment, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's a spiritual sacrifice? It's not your offerings. Your offerings are what you commit to this congregation so that we can continue being a congregation in this place. The spiritual sacrifice is when you say, Jesus, I can't do it. I need your help. That's the spiritual sacrifice. You're sacrificing your spirit. You're saying, my spirit should be put to death because it's incomplete. But Jesus, your spirit is alive. Give me your spirit that I might live. That worship, true worship, Asking Jesus for what you actually need is what you've been made royal priests in order to do, right? Another way of looking at this is when you go home this week and you maybe have a little note card with a couple of verses from 1 Peter on it, and it's like Wednesday, and you see it and you haven't looked at your Bible yet, and you go, oh, I feel guilty. Oh, I need to look at the Bible. I don't want to. Okay? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? The spiritual sacrifice is when you say, I don't care how I feel. I'm going to do it anyway. When you exercise self-control over your belly and you put it in its place and you go back to what you know is the font of everlasting life, even if it doesn't feel great afterward and you're still tired, that's the spiritual sacrifice you've been awakened to give. And I can promise you, it's not going to give you energy. It's not going to give you energy, but it will, over time, give you peace. Peace that the world cannot give. Peace that only comes in remembering it's not about you. It's not about you opening the Bible and reading the Bible. You're not going to read about you reading the Bible. (laughs) You're going to read about Jesus, right? But that will, he will, he is your peace. All right, jump to verse 9, just a little bit further down in that paragraph there. It goes past the quotes, past the quotes, page 1015. Verse 9, where he says again, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies. 
of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You may have heard Lutheran pastors in the past talk about the priesthood of all believers. I don't use that language a lot because, I'll be very frank with you, in our current Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod climate, that is part of a fight against what I consider to be biblical teaching on our relationship, pastor and people. People like to use this idea of the priesthood of all believers to say that pastors really aren't pastors. They're just guys up there who are just like the rest of us, and why should they be different than us? When the Bible is very clear, you are to set apart a man, you are to test this man, he is to be an image for you to follow, he is to be a teacher of the word, and if he doesn't do those things, you're to kick him out. That's pastors, okay? I also, like you though, am a royal priest. That's Christianity. It is the priesthood of all believers, but it's a completely different conversation than the pastor has nothing to do with the pastor. It has everything to do with what God has adopted you to be. A royal priest means a king, right? A kingly priest. You have been adopted into the family of the king. You're a brother to Jesus Christ. That makes you a prince. That makes you a ruler. That makes you royalty. Yeah. In this, you should see yourself as a vassal to him, one in full submission to him, one who follows him wherever he says to go. Same conversation I was having about sports. We talked about coaches and this idea that when your coach on your team tells you, go do this, do you debate it with him? Well, not if you don't want to run laps, you don't, right? You do exactly what he says to do. When do you get a text message that says, we have a new game this weekend at this point? Do you have a choice? No. So as much as you would submit to that, you need to understand your king is your king. It's not a metaphor. It's not an idea. It's not pretty language. It's not a children's story. We have a risen king who rules the world. This church is one of his many embassies. And whatever he says in the scriptures, we are to know and believe. We are to know and believe. That's what it means to be royalty. Yeah. The priesthood we just talked about, this is to pray. This is to offer the sacrifice of knowing I praise Jesus. And that alone is distinguishing me from the entire world. That alone makes me appear to the angels as a rejoiceable moment and to the demons as the enemy that they fear. As we'll see, he says later that they will flee from. All right, so again, verse 9 says that we are both these things, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that bit before it about being a chosen race. Racism. You tired of hearing about racism yet? It doesn't even mean what it means anymore. There are people being turned away for certain medical procedures in this country because of the wrong color of skin. Did you ever think it could happen? Being white would actually get you turned away. I thought it was supposed to be equality. I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about is how there's only two races. There's the race of Adam, and there's the race of Christ. And you have been chosen into the race of Christ. Yeah? And that race, by the way, there's no distinction. Male, female, Gentile, Jew, all of that falls away in the race of Christ. All of us in Christ shall rise from the dead, regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of whatever chemistry is going on in our body, according to our DNA. That is who you are, chosen and precious again. What does this mean? Rest of the verse, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So part of being this born again race of people means that we speak his name. He is risen. Christ has died. Christ is risen. 
Christ will come again. These words, Alleluia. These words we will speak in our lives where people will be surprised to hear it. They won't know what to do with it. When they're saying, ah, fooey, and you're saying, hallelujah, you stand out in a good way. That's what this is about. Again, to be holy as he is holy. Once you were not a people, verse 10 says, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Again, the language, we don't belong here. We're going somewhere better. As sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So again, we are to look different. We are to, in fact, act different. We're to love the orders that God has given us. And so what I want to do now is look at one of the sections of this this book that people these days really don't like because it's about the order of marriage. Skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 1. You want to stand out in God's sight? You want to be the people he chose you to be? You got to believe this is true when he says it. Chapter 3, verse 1 and following. I'm going to read quite a bit here. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It goes on. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I'm not going to break that entirely down for you. I think the parts that American feminism doesn't like jump out clearly enough. What I want you to see at the back end is, what's the result if you don't believe this? What happens, men and women, if you don't believe this? Your prayers are going to be hindered. Does that mean that God won't hear them? Maybe, because in fact, he does turn a deaf ear on those who reject him. But it may just be that you stop praying. I would suggest that after 40 plus years of hyper-American feminism, that's exactly what's happened to our churches. The men have stopped showing honor to their wife as the weaker vessel. The women have stopped thinking being the weaker vessel is an honor, even though that's clearly what Jesus thinks. In fact, he looks at all of us as the weaker vessel, his bride, the church. That is to be in submission to him. That's what Ephesians 5 says about this same stuff. That we are to submit to Christ as the church. And that that's a picture of man and woman in their marriage together. It's not about owning anybody. It's not about lording it over anybody. It's about good order being good. 
And that when there's a king, it's good for him to have a queen. And when there's a queen, it's good for her to know who the king is. And that each marriage, royal, and a priesthood is this. As we walk together through this veil of tears toward the world to come. I want you to skip down to verse 10. Where it has a more wide order for all of us. Where it says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Notice the emphasis on prayer again. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Turn the page if you got the Pew Bible. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Huh? The idea here is that while we will face suffering in this life, there will be times of persecution. By and large, doing good nets good returns. And when you build your life according to the order that God built it to be, you will find it works out fairly well. You might have enemies. They'll be surprised that you don't join them in the worship of demons. But in the long run, your life will be a life of peace, a life of contentment, a life with a clean and good conscience. So clean and good that you're willing to give it up. And yet, very rarely in history does God ask normal Christians to go into martyrdom. That's not the normal path. It happens. It happens. But more often what happens is generation come, generation go. We tell the truth downward to those who come after us. The problem is when you build your life in order and it works out, sometimes you do get wealthy. Sometimes things do get better. And then you start to think, this is what we did. Then you start to think it's always going to be this way. Then you start to put your hope in those things. And that's when God has to come along and withdraw his hand of protection. And he lets the society fall. And if you're watching right now, you know, are we in a building stage in society? No. Are we in an expansion stage in society? No. Are we at the apex of our society? No. Are we in the collapse of our society? Yeah. Yeah. I saw a video yesterday. I still I still look at Twitter. It's probably bad for me, but um, I saw a video of a TikTok shared on Twitter. If you, if you know what that means, that's fine. Um, it was a, a girl, probably 16, and she was talking to her phone. And she said, I can't remember, is it DID, something like that? Disassociative something disorder? Basically, she says, I have 30 different people living in my head. Most of them are men. Some of them are older men. And they're telling me that I have to become a man and transition into a transgender boy. But the part of me that's talking right now is a 16-year-old girl. And I don't want to listen to them. And I don't want to do it, but I have to so that they can be happy. She's weeping as she says it's under her phone. That's a child in a society that's falling apart. That's not just her fault. That's not just her parents' fault. That's our fault. All of us. And when God sends punishment on this place, however it's going to come, I don't know. May he preserve us. It's not going to be a surprise to those of us who are watching and see how bad it is. But then again, that's all the more reason to want God to hear your prayers. To put your life into the order, which he has said, this order always endures and lasts. And then, do you want to see good days? Keep your tongue from evil. Love your wife as yourself. Submit to your husband as to Christ. And then continue again, feeding yourselves with the word that you know will endure past all of these things. And don't forget to speak that word to your children. We're getting 
toward the end of time here. I do want to kind of keep it a little shorter today, but we'll see if we can do it. Um, Jump ahead to chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Uh, Excuse me, verses 1 to 4. I mentioned pastors earlier, so I want to talk about this other order. He's got these examples of how things should go. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 4 is about the life of you with your pastor. It's about what that life looks like in the church. And he's really actually talking to me. He, He says, so I exhort the elders among you. That doesn't mean the board of elders. That means those who shepherd. And you know this because he's about to say shepherd, okay? I exhort the pastors among you as a fellow pastor and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's the command, verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So again, what's a shepherd to do? Exercise oversight. This is one of the, the key images of sheep and shepherds. Sheep, they're not dumb. You might've heard that preached in the past. They're not dumb. They just can't see very well. They're kind of blind and they're all in a little tiny herd. And so if there's a wolf out in the woods around them, they, they don't have a chance. But the shepherd, well, he's a lot taller. He's got his head up and he's got eyes that look forward rather than to the side, right? And so he's out there looking and scanning the outside exercising oversight of the flock. And he says, move over here, there's better grass. Come over here, there's clean water. That's the main task of the shepherd, the pastor to do, primarily by pointing you back to the text, right? primarily by doing that, but then also doing it willingly, not for the sake of gain, not in order to gain a salary, not in order to be famous among men. And I'll tell you, those temptations are as real for us as they are for everybody else. And so I very much want you to hold me accountable to these things. I want you to tell me, pastor, first off, thank you for preaching the word. Second off, keep preaching the word. Third off, don't let anyone ever stop you from preaching the word. Because you know, and I know together, that's where our lifeblood comes from. All right, just, just that brief bit on there. Let's look at chapters, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, where it says, Humble yourselves, therefore. Remember spiritual sacrifices? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That means believe God's in charge right? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Everything you have in life right now is what God gave you. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. Woe is me. I was born in a collapsing society. No, for such a time as this, you were born to stand firm, to be built on the rock, to have no doubt that God has you and will never forsake you. Cast verse seven, all your anxiety on him, your prayers again, because he cares for you, right? Is there a problem you don't know what to do with? Have you prayed about it yet? Have you said, dear Jesus, help me with this yet? And if you stop, why'd you stop? How long did Anna pray in the temple before the Christ showed up? Does anybody know? 70 plus odd years. She was 84. She lived with her husband seven years. Oh, goodness gracious. How long? Have you resisted and prayed to the point of shedding blood? No, you haven't. So don't stop. And this goes for everything. From what would make your best life right now? Ask for it. But then also learn to ask for the things that he says ask for, like faithful and pious rulers who love the rule of law. That'd be a nice thing to have, especially with regard to the abortion issues we were just talking about, but amongst many other issues. I wrote in the 
Voice of the Shepherd recently about the statue of Satan next to the Christmas crest down in Springfield, yeah? If you hear this week, there's a school in Chicago that's got Afternoon Satan Club. Yeah? Pray for rulers who know better than that, right? Or another example, not trying to bring politics in, so I won't tell you who it is, but there was a governor sworn in just this past weekend to one of the other states, not this state. One of the first actions he took, he took quite a few. One of the first actions he took was to make sure his Department of Justice begins prosecuting crime again. They were just too busy to do it before. Too many other things to worry about. He's going to put law back into work. We are in right now, across the cities in America, the highest murder rates in a long time, period. Violent crime. And it's not being prosecuted by many leaders. I'm not telling you to go vote. I'm asking you to pray. Pray for leaders who understand that the rule of law is necessary for a good society. Whatever your anxiety, whatever you're afraid of, cast your anxiety on Jesus Christ because he cares for you. But in this then, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I really could go on and talk more about resisting the devil, but we're just going to do it right now instead by looking at one more verse in a different book. I want you to grab your bulletin and look at the gospel reading. They're going to find verse 15. If you would like to resist the devil in your life, I highly recommend committing this verse to memory. I will, however, ask you to commit it to memory a little different than it's written on the page. You can do it on the page if you like. It's just more cumbersome. So I'm going to give you an easier way to do it. This verse where Jesus says to John the Baptist, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness is the first thing Jesus says in the New Testament. If you have a red letter Bible, it'll be the first red letters in the whole New Testament. Before he says anything else, this is what he says. And that bit, let it be so now. What is that? Five English words. That's two words in the Greek. One of them is arti. Uh, One to one there. Now. But that means the other four words are being used by one Greek word. And it's this, office, office, not like office, right? But office, it's a similar word to forgiveness, but it's not what it means first, okay? And you can say, let it be, you can do John Lennon style, let it be, that's fine. But, but what it means more than that is let go, okay? Let go. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him. And he says, I'm here baptizing sinners, repent and do this, stop stealing, do this, divorce is wrong, da-da-da. Wait a minute, I'm not supposed to baptize you. And Jesus says, let go now. I love it. Stop fighting now. Stop trying so hard now. Stop thinking you know now. Stop trying to be who you're supposed to be now. Let go now. It's first part. Then he says, huthos gar prepon. That turns into, for thus it is fitting for us. (laughs) Uh, uh, The word fitting there, though, is so much better than that. Fitting is, you know, it's like what you do with your shoes. You get your shoes fitted, right? Uh, What he says is, it is beautiful. Let go now, for it is beautiful. 
And what's beautiful for us, him and John, to fulfill all righteousness, for him to be baptized in the place of sinners, for him to go to the cross on your behalf, for him to be the one who saves you by grace alone, through faith alone, for the sake of everlasting life. What I want you to try to take from this now, though, if you can, and you might have to make a note, let go now, for it is beautiful. Next time you run into a problem this week, see if you can get that out of your mouth. You're going along, life's going to be what you think, life's not what you think. You want to go fooey. Catch it. Let go now, for it is beautiful. And know that that is what Jesus thinks. That is what Jesus is doing. Even on your deathbed, even when you can no longer take another breath and you're about to dissipate into dust, let go now, for it is beautiful. Because all righteousness has been fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Peter has pointed out again and again, that is our hope as sojourners and exiles in this veil of tears, walking toward a place where the resurrection is going to be yours as you, well, let go of the grave. And all justification bursts forth from that tomb on the final day. In the name of Jesus.